Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap, presented by Google. Today's Tuesday, October 13th. Early voting numbers in Georgia are way up. San Francisco apartment rental prices are way down. And we're focused on getting a vaccine. Johnson & Johnson late last night announced that it's paused phase three clinical trials for its COVID-19 vaccine after one patient reported what the company calls an unexplained illness. This comes just weeks after AstraZeneca paused its phase three clinical trials because one of its patients experienced a neurological abnormality. Now, to our knowledge, neither of the other two phase three trials in the U.S., one being conducted by Pfizer and the other by Moderna, have been paused. Although Moderna did slow its trial a bit after struggling to enroll enough people of color. Why all of this matters, of course, is that America is basically in a holding pattern until one or more of these vaccines gets approved and distributed. Our economy, our schools, our general way of life is beholden to this pharmaceutical process with no guarantee it'll ultimately succeed. I mean, we all seem confident that there will be a vaccine probably by early next year. But that's not based on any particular reason. It's just based on a general faith in science and our collective need to be right about it. So we want to dig in deeper on where the vaccine race currently stands and the remaining hurdles in its path with former CDC director, Dr. Tom Frieden. That conversation in 15 seconds. We're joined now by former CDC director, Dr. Tom Frieden. How should Americans think about or understand these phase three trials taking a break because of one or more sick patients? Counterintuitively, it's reassuring. It tells us that they're going to look really closely, that they're not going to rush anything to the market, that they're not going to cut corners on safety. They're investigating something. We don't even know if it's someone who got placebo or the vaccine. Vaccines have to really answer to a higher authority. Because unlike a treatment, which you're giving to someone who's really sick, a vaccine you're giving to tens or hundreds of millions of people who aren't sick. So you really have to make sure that they're safe. And that's why we've been so adamant that there not be any corners cut on safety. And that's why we're really, frankly, a a pause like this is, if anything, encouraging. Obviously, we hope no one is harm, no one's sick, we don't wish anyone ill, but it's encouraging that the company is following their safety protocols. You and I spoke back in July, and I'm wondering if you can think back about three months. Right now, do you feel we are closer or further away, or maybe the same place, to a vaccine than you would have thought we would be over the summer? The good news is that over the past three months, it's increasingly clear that after you get infected with COVID, at least some people have at least some immunity for at least some period of time. Now, that's not that reassuring, but it's kind of good news because there are other coronaviruses that we don't seem to get much immunity to. It does seem that natural immunity, that is immunity to natural infection, does occur. And we extrapolate from that that vaccine-induced immunity should be possible. Furthermore, we now have a number of vaccine candidates that have pretty good evidence that there's vaccine-induced immunity, at least in the blood work. But that is a long way from being sure that we have a safe, effective, and trusted vaccine. Let me pick up on two things you just mentioned. One is overnight, we got news that a man in Nevada, I guess a man in his 20s, is the first known American to get reinfected with COVID. Somebody that had it got better and has it again. 
you know, I know you talked about how, you know, the fact that there is some immunity should make us all feel a little better. Should this man in Nevada's experience make us all feel a little worse? There's just a lot we don't know. We do know definitively that reinfection is possible. What we don't know is how common it is. And we don't know if the reinfection occurred because they got a higher dose or inoculum of virus. We don't know if it occurred because it was a different strain or mutations of the virus. We don't know if it had something to do with the first bout of illness that individual had. So there's a lot we don't know. That's why it sounds vague, but the best we can say is that some people develop some level of immunity for some period of time. Have we ever had in the U.S. this sort of mass enrollment for a single sort of drug? Because you're talking about four phase three clinical trials, kind of for something very similar. And B, how hard is it to get a demographically representative group this large that many different times? There's an old saying that change happens at the speed of trust. And the risk here is because of politicization of the vaccine or because of other concerns or because of a company or another trying to rush to market, you may have real difficulty completing enrollment because of the historic and ongoing racism in the U.S. and in the medical system. In the U.S., you have a deep distrust in the black community. I've already heard from community groups that we work with, people saying, we're not going to take that Trump vaccine. And that's really unfortunate. It isn't a vaccine that's any political party or politician. This is a vaccine against a virus. And in the Latinx community, you have concerns about immigration and alienation from the healthcare system and access to healthcare services. So it's really important that you get a representative group to get vaccinated. One thing that hasn't gotten a lot of coverage so far is that children are not part of any of these trials yet. So kids aren't going to get vaccinated anytime soon because we have zero data about safety and efficacy in kids. Pfizer seems to be the one that is furthest along, at least at this point, because they haven't paused their trial. They haven't slowed it down. If in theory, Pfizer tomorrow were to apply for an emergency use authorization, how long for a vaccine could that process take from application to approval? I am not an expert on the FDA procedures. It could be quick if the routine criteria were to be used. Routine criteria are really lax. Routine criteria basically say it may be more helpful than harmful. And, you know, I could make an argument that leeches may be more helpful than harmful in the treatment of COVID because they have an anticoagulant and there's clotting in COVID. So the bar for an EUA is extraordinarily low. That's why the professional scientists at the FDA have come up with essentially a higher bar for a vaccine EUA and published that. And that's reassuring. How long it would take them to get that through remains to be seen. But we started with the issue of safety and pausing trials. And one of the issues is the Pfizer trial hasn't had enough time for people to get both doses and to see if they have an adverse event. That's why many of us were quite concerned when it looked like Pfizer was going to rush this to try to be first to market for whatever reason. Final question for you is a kind of political slash medical one, which is President Trump and Anthony Fauci now seem to be in kind of open warfare, you could say, through the press at this point. Were President Trump to win re-election, it seems highly unlikely he would want to keep Anthony Fauci around. Is there an obvious successor to him when it comes to leading infectious disease management for the U.S.? Well, I'm sure Tony Fauci would say that there are tons of wonderful people 
at uh, NIAID. Tony is a career civil servant who has for decades been essentially a national treasure for both Democratic and Republican presidents. I had the privilege of working very closely with him for many years when I was CDC director. I think that the bigger issue is the issue of institutions. And how do we ensure that institutions like the NIH, the CDC, the FDA are insulated from political pressures that are in no one's best interest? Because ultimately, we need the public to be able to trust these institutions, whether it's about vaccine recommendations or mask recommendations or research results or approval of drugs. And if we lose that trust and integrity of the institutions, we lose something of enormous value to all of our communities. Dr. Tom Frieden, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Welcome back. What we're looking at today is the unemployment rate. Not the official one, which is 7.9%, but what some term the true unemployment rate, which is over 26%. That's according to data shared with Axios on HBO by Gene Ludwig, former U.S. Comptroller of the Currency, who adds that the true unemployment rate right now for Black Americans is over 30%. So we asked Axios Chief Financial Correspondent Felix Salmon to help us understand the difference. Basically, what they're saying is if you work for one hour every two weeks and make seven bucks, you're not employed. You're not earning a living wage. And they're saying, why don't we count those people, the people who are looking for work, who want more work, who want a full time job that pays a living wage, but who can't find it because there's just not enough good jobs to go around? How does living wage get defined? They defined it very conservatively. They said it's $20,000 a year and I think $2019. And that is way below the official poverty rate in every single state in the nation. Obviously, if you are in San Francisco or somewhere like that, then poverty wage is much higher than that, but they've just kept it at a flat $20,000 everywhere. So if you want to sort of adjust for variations in regional poverty rates, then the true, true unemployment rate would be even higher. Today, we're also watching the ongoing efforts to pass a new federal stimulus. The latest is that Mitch McConnell today said the Senate will be asked to vote on a standalone reauthorization of the Paycheck Protection Program, which provided loans to small businesses and nonprofits adversely impacted by the pandemic. In other words, another skinny bill. Democrats, meanwhile, continue to insist on a more comprehensive package while the White House is kind of all over the place, with President Trump most recently saying he wants an even bigger stimulus than what House Democrats passed in May. Finally, we're watching Jeff Bezos' spaceship company, Blue Origin, which today did its first launch of 2020 from its West Texas facility. It was an uncrewed test of a system designed to eventually take paying tourists into near orbit. Blue Origin hasn't formally announced a timeline for manned flights, but today's launch is a major step toward that goal. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven, have a great national Yorkshire Pudding Day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.